History of Africana Philosophy by T.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Common Circle, on tenor firmin. Ask anyone who has taught courses at a university, and they will tell you that education is a two-way street. The teachers learn from the students just as much as the other way around. Sometimes, students even say things that lead their professors to take on major research projects. This is what happened in 1988, when an anthropologist named Caroline Fleur-Lobin was teaching a class about Count Joseph-Arthur de Gobineau, who, in the 1850s, wrote a book on the inequality of the human races. Happily, one of her students was from Haiti, and asked if she had ever heard of the Haitian scholar Antenor Firmin, who had responded with a book of his own, intended to combat the pseudoscience of Gobineau and other French anthropologists. Fleur Lobin had to admit that the name was new to her, but she looked into this intriguing figure and eventually wound up writing the introduction to an English translation of Fermin's treatise. This translation, published only in 2000, brought Fermin unprecedented attention, and now he's increasingly acknowledged as a major figure in the history of anthropology and the philosophy of race. A glance at the repugnant ideas of Gobineau shows us what Firmin was up against. Gobineau divided humanity into three races, with whites at the top of the hierarchy, followed by the yellow Asian races, and then black people at the bottom. His message was a deeply pessimistic one, since he thought that the mating of whites with other races would degrade their biological stock, and that this process was already well underway. Ideally, there would never have been mixing of the races, in which case, as he put it, the supremacy would no doubt have always been in the hands of the finest of the white race, and the yellow and black varieties would have crawled forever at the feet of the lowest of the whites. But now, non-white blood was in the genetic pool, so to speak. Gobineau called this an evil that nothing can balance or repair. Pretty extreme stuff, you might think, but none of this was far from the mainstream of 19th century anthropology, which largely took it for granted that black people are biologically inferior and can never attain equality with whites. Still, the anthropologists allowed that there might be exceptions to the rule. In 1884, while in Paris as a political refugee from his native Haiti, Firmin was allowed to join the Paris Anthropological Society. His presence, indeed his mere existence, was an anomaly from the point of view of his new colleagues. At a later meeting in 1892, he was pointedly asked whether he had any white ancestors, which would help to explain his evident intelligence and eloquence. And of course, he heard many ideas like those of Gobineau, even if the latter was not a particularly influential figure. Firmin's experiences convinced him that he needed to write a refutation of the dominant theories of race, taking inspiration from a like-minded Haitian anthropologist who was also in Paris, Louis-Joseph Janvier. Janvier had already written a pamphlet arguing for the equality of the races, and Firmin would follow this up with an ambitious treatise drawing on history, literature, ethnography, biology, and plain old common sense to make the same point. One thing he and his opponents did agree on was that race is, at least in the present, central to anthropology. Early in his treatise, Firmin defines this science as the study of man in his physical, intellectual, and moral dimensions 
as he is found among the different races which constitute the human species. Yet at the conclusion of the book, he envisions future scientists being able to dispense with the concept of race altogether once the basic unity and equality of the human species has become appreciated and practically acknowledged. The differentiation of nations according to their level of civilization will still be possible as a sociological enterprise, but as he puts it, there will be no question of race, for the word implies a biological and natural fatality which has no correlation with the degree of ability observable among the different human communities spread around the globe. Fumann's goal is thus to establish that the study of racial inequality is a social science, not a biological one. But it remains vitally important to him that his project, and anthropology in general, are indeed empirical in approach. His charge against the inequality thesis is not merely that it is false, but that it is unscientific, with, as he says, no natural law to support it. Fumann's devotion to empiricism was inspired by the writings of Auguste Comte, whose positivist philosophy Fermin discovered as a student in Haiti. A fellow classmate recalled that, after reading Comte, Fermin was inspired to explore every scientific discipline under the sun. He refused to specialize in any of them, he boldly sought them all. In On the Equality of the Races, Fermin states openly that positivism is a school of thought which I embrace totally. As he explains, this school downgrades purely abstract disciplines, like mathematics, though they do have their place. Real science takes its lead from empirical observations, which must be the basis of all sound theory. Fumant celebrates the collapse of older, spiritualist approaches, which identified the true human with the immaterial soul. Now, in a more enlightened time, we realize that the human is just another animal, which differs from the other animals only by a few degrees of superiority. This leaves it as an entirely empirical question whether black people are in fact biologically inferior to whites. And Firmin is in a strong position here, since the biological theories he is attacking as utter nonsense are, in fact, of course, utter nonsense. A notorious example is the study of the human skull, and how its shape and size varies amongst peoples of the globe and is correlated to degrees of intelligence. Fumant thinks that anthropologists who take this seriously are just repeating a folk belief with a pretense of scientific exactness. He gleefully points out the inconsistencies between published measurements, and points out that these findings are just being used to justify assumptions of racial inequality that were made in advance. Any researcher with a large number of skulls at his disposal can easily find a way to make them say whatever he wants. These researchers have not really submitted the inequality thesis to serious inquiry, instead taking it as a kind of dogmatic revelation or just as common sense. It is, to use a phrase that for a positivist like Fermin is something close to an obscenity, a priori, in other words, taken for a granted without evidence. As he complains, these scientists concluded without any study that what they saw, or what they were told must be, was consistent with the natural order. Already, Janvier had made the same complaint, pointing to the practice of chattel slavery and its violent collapse in the United States as decisive proof of the danger of a priori affirmations in matters of ethnography. Fermat places the racist anthropologists of his own day within a long tradition, which goes back to antiquity. Already Aristotle, when he set out a theory of natural slavery in his politics, was guilty of seeking a kind of retrospective justification 
for an entrenched social practice. The pseudoscience of the 19th century is similar, insofar as it seeks to assuage the conscience of white people who might otherwise have misgivings about having oppressed, slaughtered, and enslaved non-white people all over the globe. But there is a telling difference between ancient and modern rationalizations of slavery, a difference that exposes the artificiality of the inequality thesis. A glance at the historical record shows that slavery was thought to be natural long before it was associated with race. The very word slave, as Firmin rightly points out, is connected to Slav, and Slavs are not black. From antiquity, too, there is abundant textual evidence to show that the Greeks and Romans subjected others of their own race to enslavement. At a more theoretical level, Firma also engages critically with then-current ideas about what race might mean in the first place. As with the case of skull measurements, he's able to produce numerous mutually inconsistent attempts to divide up this human species into distinct groups. There's a connection here to a controversy that had been raging in the Paris Anthropological Society, which Firmin also mentions in his book. Back in 1858, the scientist Paul Broca had triggered this controversy by announcing the successful crossbreeding of a rabbit and a hare. This undermined one convenient way of demarcating species from one another, namely that two animals belong to the same species if they can mate together. But it also reopened the door for those who believe that humans are not one, but several distinct species who can reproduce across the divisions, like the rabbit and hare. This hare-brained, and indeed hare-raising, position was called polygenesis, as opposed to monogenesis, which is, of course, the doctrine that the human species is one. Polygenesis had been defended by various thinkers since the 17th century, including the famous French philosopher Voltaire. You might expect Firmin to resist polygenesis at all costs, but in fact, he shows himself relaxed about the entire debate. After all, he says, even if different human races have different origins, they might still be equal. He also thinks that the main evidence so far produced for monogenesis is scriptural, since the book of Genesis tells us that we are all descended from Adam and Eve. As a good positivist scientist, Firmin dismisses this out of hand, in one of several rather irreverent passages that would have had the pious Alexander Crummel spinning in his grave if Crummel had not been alive and well at the time. Firmin's book was published in 1885, the same year that Crummel debated Frederick Douglass at Harper's Ferry. In the end, Firmin cautiously adopts a kind of compromise view, according to which humans arose separately in several different places of the globe, but still as one species and according to a single blueprint. As for racial intermixing, which Gauvineau thought so disastrous, Firmin welcomes it as a dramatic confirmation of his equality thesis. Mixed-race people are as intelligent as white people, and their difference from pure blacks or pure whites is a purely physiological phenomenon, nothing more. He takes pride in pointing to Haiti, where numerous men of mixed race have shown great talent in poetry and other fields. Haiti is in fact crucial to Firmin's argument, and not only for patriotic reasons. Again, in this he is following Janvier, who called the island a sociological field of experimentation, though Firmin would prefer the term observation. The value of Haiti is that following independence in 1804, people of African ancestry have been able to improve themselves in a way that Firmin thinks all but impossible in Africa itself. Here we have another fundamental flaw in the method of those who propound the inequality of the races. They do not compare like with like. Instead, they consider a highly educated intellectual from Paris 
contrast him with an uneducated African, and conclude that the former must be biologically superior to the latter. Firman does not take the route we might expect or prefer by arguing that inhabitants of traditional African society are every bit the equals of urban Parisians. Instead, he concedes the inferiority of Africans as an uncontroversial point. Occasionally, we get a caveat, as when he says that African culture is rather more civilized than Europeans usually assume. At one point, he even quotes African ideas about God as being too transcendent to be concerned with human affairs, something we also looked at in our episode on traditional African conceptions of the divine, as it happens. Firmin welcomes this as a sign of rationality. Generally, though, he accepts without protest that white people are indeed currently superior to black people. He even admits that whites are on average more attractive, and more importantly, that they have produced the best scientists and scholars. But there is, he insists, no evidence that this is a matter of biology. To the contrary, it is a matter of environment, upbringing, and education. It is only once black and white people have been equally educated that the potential of both groups can be compared. Given what he sees as the undeveloped state of Africa, which is partly due to climate, partly to the lingering effects of the slave trade, opportunities to make such a fair comparison are limited, hence the importance of Haiti. Through their exposure to the values of the Enlightenment, French literature, and so on, Haitians have already made huge strides in catching up with the white race, which Firmin takes already to have journeyed along a progressive path which all the other human groups must follow. Talented Haitians have been able to rise to the level of whites, to the point that they can hardly be distinguished from whites. So in a preface he wrote to the poetry of a black poet named Paul Lochard, he asked, can one ever notice the strong dose of African blood that flows in his veins? This is apt to strike us as a more unattractive side of Firmin's thought. He may have been less religious than Crummel, but he arguably shared with Crummel the notion that black people could only advance by adopting the values and knowledge of white culture. Firmin thinks this is simply obvious. He writes, backward peoples need to come into contact with more advanced peoples in order to progress. Firmin is consistent enough about this that he also applies the idea to the difference between the two sexes. This is not a topic that comes up often in his book, which is of course about racial inequality, not gender inequality. In fact, during his discussion of brain size, he dismisses female brains as irrelevant. But later on, he adds in a striking passage, does not civilization always tend to cause men and women to become equal and achieve the same qualities? And of course, his whole argument could easily be adapted to show that claims of female inferiority are as poorly founded as claims of racial inferiority. Disappointingly, Fimon doesn't seem to have drawn that conclusion himself. This emerges from a passage where he's attacking Clemence Royer, who produced the French translation of Darwin's Origin of Species. He says that she is a learned woman, but a woman nonetheless. There are problems of such complexity that they can be properly studied only by men. But Firmin does add in explanation of this obnoxious remark, only men, because of their particular education and their temperament as males, can see these problems from every angle. If the reference to temperament suggests natural inferiority on the part of women, the part about particular education holds out the prospect that equal education might put women on a more equal footing with men. The reason Firmin lashed out at Royer is that, in her preface to the translation of Darwin, 
she had claimed that the new evolutionary theory supported the thesis of inequality between the races. She even looked forward to the prospect that, through biological competition, the superior human race would win out against and ultimately extinguish the lesser ones, and no prizes for guessing which race she took to be superior. But Firman disagrees about whether this is an implication of Darwinism. To the contrary, he cites the theory of evolution as proving his own thesis that it is environment that makes the difference between the races. He goes remarkably far here, assuming that changes in social and physical surroundings can even lead to changes in the physical features that make people more or less beautiful. Apart from Haiti, Firman's favorite way to demonstrate the centrality of environment is one that will be very familiar to us, ancient Egypt. He devotes an entire chapter of the equality of the races to this topic, attempting to refute those who claim that the Egyptians must have been white, given their astounding achievements in science and architecture. This is nonsense, says Firman. You can see that Egyptians were black just by examining the statues they made. He also invokes another culture familiar to us, Ethiopia, which had impressive achievements of its own, and concludes that the population of Egypt was black like the Ethiopians, and the inhabitants of Ethiopia were as civilized as the Egyptians. Like many other 19th century Africana thinkers, he also stresses the debt owed to Egypt by Greek and Roman philosophy and science. So you might say that for Firmin, white people are further along the path of progress than any other group, but only because they were given an initial push by black people. Yet along with these arguments about African sources of wisdom and the great potential of all who have African ancestry, Firmin, in the very same context, repeats his negative assessment of the Africans of his own day, taking recourse to, of all things, the measurements taken of skulls. Though he has discredited this method elsewhere in the book, he here notes that comparison of ancient Egyptian skulls to those of modern-day Africans reflects the fact that the latter have now fallen into barbarism. Given his naming of Haiti as the best example of a society where black people have achieved progress, and the way he values his countrymen's ability to participate in French intellectual and artistic culture, Firmin clearly represents an elitist form of Haitian nationalism. In this respect, we might compare him to other figures of the contemporary Haitian scene, like Denisois Delorme. Delorme's magnum opus, The Theoreticians in Power, asks whether any social order can be successful without empowering intellectuals. The question is pursued through the depiction of a dialogue between two Haitians concerning the thoughts of luminaries from ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and Enlightenment France. Like Delorme, who was a government minister, Firmin was no armchair philosopher. He acted on his ideas about progress in Haiti by getting involved in the political life of the island. After his years in Paris refuting racist anthropological theories, we find him back in Haiti as of 1887. In 1891, he was serving as Minister of Finance and Foreign Affairs when none other than Frederick Douglass turned up in his role as American ambassador. Firmin must have been thrilled. He had cited Douglas in Equality of the Races as an outstanding mind, and quoted at length from the famous scene in which Douglas described the vicious slave driver Covey. The two got on well, perhaps too well, since they were accused of making secret agreements rather than looking after their respective national interests. Both wound up losing their positions. But Firmin tried again. In 1902, he led a political movement in Haiti that sparked a full-blown civil war. His side lost, and he fled the island never to return, though another Firminist insurgency 
flared up in 1910 before being put down again. He spent his later years in exile on the island of St. Thomas, the same island where Edward Blyden was born and raised. There, Firmin wrote another major work, The Letters of St. Thomas, in which he argues for a Caribbean-wide coalition that would unite the interests of the region. He wrote, By joining together their national destinies and attracting all the other Antillean islands, which live today under colonial rule, they would ultimately form a substantial state, capable of maintaining itself on its own and establishing such a name for itself as could be held in high esteem by other nations. An important plank in his platform was the encouragement of foreign investment in Haiti and the rest of the Caribbean. Here we see his continued commitment to the idea that black societies would benefit from exchange and connection to white societies as long as the relationship was no longer exploitative. Indeed, if we look back to his earlier treatise on the equality of races, we can see that Firmin always had his eye on the wider political implications of the anthropological disputes. Consistently with his premise that it is environment, and not biology, that causes inequality, Firmin was attentive to disparities within a single race or society. Uncovering the incoherence of racist arguments was thus a step towards a more egalitarian future, in terms of economic class as well as race. As he wrote, Recognition of the equality of the races entails a definitive recognition of the equality of all social classes in every nation of the world. Wherever social inequality is still a cause of conflict, the doctrine of the equality of the races will be a remedy. Admittedly, this is not a major theme of the work. Firmin was no Marxist, but he did believe in, as he put it, human solidarity. Whereas Marx told people that they had nothing to lose but their chains, Firmin chose to end his treatise by proclaiming that, an invisible chain links all the members of humanity in a common circle. We've placed Firmin here in our series of podcasts as a late 19th century figure because of the date of his most important work on the equality of the races. But Firmin's Letters of St. Thomas were published in 1910, and he did not die until 1911, the same year that Janvier died, as it happens. So we might instead think of him as a transitional figure between the 19th and 20th centuries. In fact, he attended an event which marks that transition better than any other, as one of two Haitian representatives at the 1900 Pan-African Congress in London. We'll be meeting other delegates to that Congress in due course, among them W.E.B. Du Bois, but we're not ready to leave the late 19th century yet, or indeed, to leave the Caribbean. Next time, we'll be meeting the Trinidadian authors J.J. Thomas and Frederick Alexander Durham. The Caribbean coalition envisioned by Firmin did not emerge in historical reality, but by turning our attention from Haiti to Trinidad, we'll be doing our best to recreate it in podcast form here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God.